Rabbi Arya Bernstein is a fifth-generation Chicago Southsider. Any Chicago Southsiders here? No. Okay. Recently returned after living in Israel for more than a decade. He's the editor of the website JewSchool.com, a board member of the Jewish Public Media, and has been involved in the founding and nurturing of egalitarian learning and prayer communities throughout Israel and the United States. Rabbi Bernstein coordinates the Mishkan Community's Back to Basics Intro to Judaism program, has been an editor and translator for the Koren Steinzoltz English Talmud Edition, and director of alumni affairs and recruitment for Makon Hadar. He has studied at Columbia University, the Jewish Theological Seminary, Yeshiva University, Yeshivat Chavavei Torah, and Yeshivat Malagaboa, as well as taught at Risha, Yeshivat Talpiot, the Hartman High School, Camp Ramah, the Takum Social Justice Bay Midrash, the Kavara Institute, the Isabella Freeman Retreat Center, and communities and campuses all over the world. This is my funeral. <laughs> in 2011, he released a hip-hop album called A Roomful of Ottomans. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Arjunberg. Great. Um, Shmuel, you'll tell me if this is the wrong place. I'm going to make sure Yeah. It, the counter is going. It says 647. It's like 8. Uh, thanks, everybody, for welcoming me. And feel free at some point, if this arrangement isn't working and you prefer me to stand, I'm willing to. Like, if you can't see or hear, I'm happy to go back to that and respect local custom. Um, I just kind of prefer to sit and workshop together and stuff. Um, okay, so the uses and misuses of Gentile wisdom and culture on being a cosmopolitan but not colonized minority. What do I mean by that? What are we talking about tonight? Well, first of all, I'll take a few comments or questions if there are. Are there things that jumped out? Are there either you know, intriguing, inviting pieces of that or concerns that people, when they saw this title, what jumped out to you? And I'll talk about sort of what I'm getting at and then we'll just get right into it. Well, cosmopolitan compared to colonized. And what you mean by that? Okay. Great. Yeah, we should talk about that. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, any associations for you about what, and what's your name again? David. Uh, cosmopolitan uh, to me means worldly, maybe a little bit sophisticated. Colonized means uh, maybe uh, set apart, um, segregated. Okay, great. Yeah. I've got. Uh, and say your name again, too. Lewis. Yeah. I've got downtown Rome versus the shuttle. Downtown Rome is cosmopolitan, shuttle's common, okay? It, it strikes me that we have very few ways of talking about ourselves, oftentimes as traditional or progressive, reform conservative, or orthodox, or affiliated or un unaffiliated, and it's intriguing to think of ourselves in relationship to society and to one another in, in some different terms. Okay. Yeah, and what's your name again? Erwin. Uh, colonized also mean, had a connotation to me of being dominated, uh, yeah. uh, assimilated, um, losing um, your own wisdom. Which is, in a sense, maybe almost opposite of what uh, Lewis and Michael, you talked about segregated and set, <laughs> set off, yeah. what, and Irwin is suggesting it means I've kind of swallowed, You're swallowed. up, so, or at least there might be some tension there that we'll have to work out what we mean by our terminology. Any, anything else that people want to put on the table? Yeah, what's your name? Thelma. 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 I think, uh, to 
mean, it's like when you're part of a large multicultural metropolis, usually, uh, that you can swim in those waters, and yet you can maintain your independence. You are not colonized by the masses. Great. Okay. So we're putting some good things on the table, and we'll see how they can come serve us as we move into the text and our study and our conversation together. Any, anything else before we do that? Great. Um, the uses and misuses of Gentile wisdom and culture. So I'm going to, I don't know anybody here pretty much, except for alone, personally, but I'm going to wager, I'm just going to make a guess based on, you know, judging from very circumstantial evidence, what I see, what I know about the program, I'm going to guess that, like, for everybody in this room, the question, like, uh, like a, uh, a, late, a 19th century version of the question of the uses of Gentile wisdom and culture is completely uninteresting for the most part to folks in this room. Like, are you allowed to study books written by Gentiles or wisdom of Gentiles? I'm guessing that that's completely <laughs> uncontroversial to our group. Nobody here has read a book by a Gentile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, I don't even know Gentile. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Read so, uh, best friends off. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so, and so, you know, in a certain sense, this was actually a topic that in modern Judaism has gotten a lot of attention. But actually in, let's say, the last couple of generations, certainly in the spectrum of American Jewish life probably represented in this room. Um, I'm just, I'm guessing. Let's say the spectrum between um, religiously involved modern Orthodox to religiously involved uh, conservative reconstructionist reform to culturally involved secular secular cultural Jew, like the, if, if that kind of range is represented in this room, whether the secular culture of Yiddishist or Zionist or socialist or not, like all sorts of different manifestations, probably for all of those, um, in the last couple of generations, we've not really engaged with this question of Gentile wisdom, Gentile culture. It's a given. We're part of it, we're, we embrace it, and, um, and we live in it. Uh, how many of us in this room either are in or went to college? <laughs> okay, so that itself is that itself is indicative. That was a controversial proposition in certain religious Jewish communities. Are you allowed to go to this higher place of higher learning, not under our control and not under our curriculum? Not under like, what does it mean to read Greek philosophy, even to study science and math? So that's always like the least controversial. But what about studying the humanities, studying philosophy, studying anthropology, studying the Bible <coughs> from professors who are not mitzvah observant or are not Jewish? So all these things were very live questions in the Jewish world and still are uh, in some slices of it and kind of not in ours. Um, and I'm not looking, I, I think that's, that's right, and that makes sense. Sometimes when you've answered a question, there's no need to keep rehashing old questions. But I think that in our comfortable place in the world of general wisdom, in our place in which um, Jews and Jewish wisdom 
have an honored place within the wider Western canon and that we feel at home in that, there are some hard questions that merit asking um, about what it means to operate within our own tradition, how that interacts with the traditions around us, what are lines of demarcation, where should there be lines of demarcation, and where we don't want lines of demarcation, whether where, um, where the integration is very po uh, positive. And here's a way in which I think the Jewish conversation stands to gain certain other ethnic groups um, uh, in campus life and in other slices of you know, liberal intellectual culture in the United States. Um, uh, black communities, queer communities, uh, immigrant communities, Latino communities have been really you know, pushing back the last generation against you know, melting pot, total acceptance, um, American theory, and like really trying to ask questions about what are the places in which the heart of who we are is being co-opted or silenced, even with a smile. So, and I think we have what to gain from that conversation. Um, the Jewish community has an odd posturing in the world as being both a tiny minority, usually less of a minority in the places where we live, because the Jews aren't, as a population, are not so well distributed around the country, we're in pockets of strong communities, and because Baruch Hashem, thanks to some good old-fashioned American, like last century American care for immigrants and the poor, with our own hard work and smart organization and a lot of good luck, the community is one that has resources by and large and um, power. Um, and so what does it mean to operate as a minority with all these features? Um, so in order to ask this question about how we relate to particularly Jewish texts and wisdom and culture and how we interact with texts and wisdom of culture that are emanating from cultures other than ours, there are three sources that I want to look at with you tonight. The first one, which is Roman numeral two on these pages, I made it an audible at the line of scrimmage. Like after I pressed send to Shmuley of the sources, I was like, no, I actually want to do it in a different order. So we're going to start in the middle of page three. With, so you see these sheets with the title? So on page three, sorry, yeah, on page three, you'll see a Roman numeral two. It says the blessing over Torah. It's just one little source. We're going to look at that and think about that talk about what that blessing arouses for us. Then we're going to backtrack, and we're going to talk about the character of Bil'am in the Book of Numbers. Bil'am, who of course is the famous, um, is he a, a Moabite seer? There's all sorts of questions in scholarship. Is he a seer? Is he a diviner? Is he a prophet? Um, is he Moabite, or is he kind of an independent agent, operator, gets hired by Moabite King Balak to curse the Israelites. And he keeps telling them over and over again, like, you can hire, you, you can ask me to do whatever you want. I'm just telling you I'll only do what Elohim tells me, or whatever God tells me. God wants me to curse the Israelites, you'll be happy. Not, not, but I just want to be very clear, money has nothing to do with it. And it says that over and over and over again, and he blesses the Israelites. Um, so we're going to look at Bil'am as perhaps the most famous, um, I would say, the most famous um, embodier of 
is done in a non-Israelite in the Torah. There's lots of power in non-Israelites in the Torah, especially Pharaoh and others, but in terms of somebody being a sage, Bil'am is the central character for that in the Torah. So let's actually look and see how the biblical and rabbinic tradition understand Bil'am and try to think about the, what we gain and what we lose from different perspectives of Bil'am. And then finally, um, in the, we'll, go, we'll jump back to page three and reflect on the Hanukkah story, which is very timely for right now, having just come out of it. What did, what did we learn in the past week? Okay, any other questions or comments about what we're about to do, or any of the introductory comments? Great. All right, so let's look straight at the blessing we say over Torah. This is classically, traditionally said every morning before you study Torah, in principle, every time before you study Torah, um, a Jew says two brachot. One is, praised are you, Hashem Rehazatra, commanded us, la'asok b'divrei Torah, to engage with the words of Torah, and then there's a whole extension on that bracha about all of our descendants and descendants and how we're going to keep it up. And then we say the second bracha, and which might be familiar from another context also. So um, usually, even though it should fall at any time we study Torah, the rabbis tell us that <coughs> saying it once in the morning and then saying some verses in a Mishnah is enough because there's never really an interruption of our Torah learning. If you learn a little bit in the morning, just saying some <coughs> verses in a Mishnah, any other learning you do in the day is an uninterrupted connection to that because Torah is always going on somewhere in there. So hopefully we can live lives that make that, make the, rab- the, the, uh, the justify or validate the rabbis about that. Um, can somebody read this one? So most of the text we'll look at just in the English and I'll make some references in Hebrew. This one I think we should look at first in the English and then in the Hebrew. So if somebody wants to volunteer to read the English and then somebody to volunteer to read the Hebrew, that would be great. Don't be shy. I'm the one who should be shy. I'm the guest here. I don't know. You all know each other. Who wants to? Great. Which language would you like to listen? Hebrew. Great. And so before that, who will read it in the English? While you're thinking about volunteering, I'll explain pedagogically why I start with the English instead of what's usually done starting with the Hebrew. A teacher of mine, Rabbi Yossi Gordon, who's an amazing Torah educator in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, made like, this is a really smart point that what's happening when like people giving sermons or teachers with, this was me until the moment he said this too, like say a source in the original Hebrew and then say it in English. Um, it doesn't really help people who don't know Hebrew very well. They're sort of like wading through the Hebrew source. Um, and then the people who do know Hebrew, the English is an afterthought. So it's mostly a theatrical kind of thing. Like we're going to jump in and say the source in the original, but then what can we do? We have to translate it also makes much more sense to do it from an educational perspective to do it the opposite way. To open with the English, this is our topic, what we're talking about. And then people who might have some fragmentary Hebrew, you say the Hebrew after that, they might actually pick up some things because they already know our topic and they might actually pick up on sensitivities. So that's what I try to follow. So now that I've given you time to think about whether you want to volunteer to read, who would like to read uh, this in the English? Yeah, say your name. With one proviso, I'm Mike. Yeah. And, uh, there's uh, Y-H-W-H. Correct. And that could be... 
different pronounced things. Exactly. So I, that's intentionally... Jews have a long tradition of feeling awkward about how to address and refer to God. So um, anytime you have a source that in the Hebrew is yud heh vav heh, God's personal name, I render it exactly like that in the English, Y-H-W-H, uh, which gives no, no more indication than the Hebrew gives on how to pronounce it. So um, in ritual settings, we tend, because we're very anxious about pronouncing God's personal name, whether we have the level of focus and commitment to be able to do it in a way that brings honor, maybe we don't merit to have that kind of intimacy to address the one with the personal name. And so we do the opposite ritually. We say Adonai, which means my Lord, which is the most distancing way to address God. And it's kind of a euphemism. So that's one option. Many modern translations, like the Feast of Freedom, Haggadah, and others, would say here, praise are you, Adonai, our God. I don't like doing that, because Adonai is actually a word, and sometimes we have that, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, and um, then we're totally erasing the fact of the intimacy from the conversation. It's very different to have a word that means non-intimate and say non-intimate. That's different than having a word that means most intimate, but I don't say it. Another thing that is uh, popular, like more in from circles, is to just say Hashem, which just means the name. So I know it's a personal name. If you say the name, I'm not really going to say the name because that's who am I to say the name. But so I'll just say the name, which means the name. So you can say Hashem. Um, uh, it's especially popular in a lot of non-Jewish circles to pronounce like Yahweh or something. That doesn't have a lot of traction to it in Jewish tradition, Jewish history, I don't do that, but some people have done that in groups I've taught, but I'm not going to impose what to do. When I'm reading something like this, I would probably say Hashem if it's in a study setting. That's me, but there are other authentic traditions, but I wanted to not decide them, and that's why I put it ambiguously. So, before you read, I have the same question, Yeah. but in the Hebrew text. Great. I'm just so, assuming this is a typographical error. So, it's not an error, it's not an error, but often... Because if God's name is actually on something, then like maybe you have to bury it and you can't just throw it out. And in the age of source sheets, like our, our Geniza you know, uh, output is just unsustainable. So I try to avoid putting like God's name on source sheets unless it's like we're using it for ritual purposes. So, so that hey, so I can pronounce it anyway. Hey, the shorthand, well. any way you feel. Right? You. So, <laughs> now that we've got all the rules about how to address God, right, we didn't even get into like our theological differences in the room here. We're just but okay. So um, yeah, again, what's your name? Mike. Mike. So Mike and Lewis are gonna take us through this blessing. Praise are you, Hashem, our God, universal ruler, who chose us from all the nations and gave us your Torah. Blessed are you, Hashem, giver of the Torah. Yes, Baruch is often translated as blessed, and I accept that. It's a six of one, half a dozen of the other. I wrote praise, blessed is also legitimate. Um, go for it, Lewis. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'charbanu mikol ha'amin, natan lanu et torato, Amen. Okay. And which is an apt way to start a session on studying Torah together. This is, it is one of the blessings we say over studying Torah. When else do we say this blessing? When you take the Torah. 
Great. So when you personally, when you ritually, when we take the Torah for the public reading and you get an aliyah, you go up there and in the traditional liturgy, first you call everyone, make sure everyone's listening by saying baruchu, and then once everybody's listening, you start before you actually go in and read by saying this blessing. Now it's had some controversy in modern Jewish world. Does anybody go to a congregation where this is not the blessing that's said? Do you know? Or we don't have a reconstruction in synagogue in town. What's that? We don't have a reconstruction oh, okay. in synagogue in town, which I think is the there primary camp. Yeah. Great, okay. So let's do a little like mental exercise then. Can you imagine why some modern Jews might feel uneasy about this blessing? We'll talk about what we like about it in a minute, but like what might be challenging about this blessing? Yeah. The thing about being chosen and So yeah, what does that mean or imply? Good question. Yeah. Or what might it mean and imply? Let's go down that road. Notice okay. of exceptionalism. Exceptionalism. So explain what you mean by that term and your name. My name is Stu. Yeah. Uh, the notion that, that somehow we, we are superior. Yes, if we're chosen, then it's like, and the hell with everybody else. Right. No, it's, it's the um, duties that we have to do. That's why... Um, we're not chosen because we are superior. On the contrary, we have a lot of responsibilities. So you like chosenness? Because, yes, yeah. because um, we, we are the one who have to do a lot of work. But isn't that, isn't that itself a recognition of superiority? I mean, like, if my, if my, parent, no. if my parent always turns to me when something needs no, to be No, you always have to, to improve. Yeah, I understand that, but like, so if I'm the one who always has lots of expectations put on me, and my siblings are never even asked to do anything. I might get annoyed at them sometimes, and it might feel like a burden on me, but on some level, isn't the message art also being transmitted that like, Ari is the No, one you're not good right? enough. Ari you is have the one to, I trust. No, you're not good enough, and you have to work on it. Okay, but the other ones, they're set, so they don't need to practice. <laughs> so maybe we're worse than everybody no. right. No, I mean, but I well, know, I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm being a nudnik on purpose. I know, I'm doing that to my students Right, now I'm being well. a nudnik on purpose, and okay. I, both to be a nudnik for the theatrical sense of that, but also because I think there's some... You are not going I wanna, to... Here's what I want to do. I think, so your answers might actually be right, good, we might accept them, we might have, find consensus around them. I want to make sure that we don't let a pretty good answer um, paper over a really good question, and like make sure that we actually sit with the problem for a minute. Because on some level, even if we're going to find consensus that we're to make sense of what you're saying and that that works for us in our lives, on some level, um, whether it means you're better, you're worse, you're different, on some level, being singled out from everybody else is needs some explanation. And it particularly needs explanation, again, for a group who, like, all went to college, and not specifically, like, you know, YU, which is a fine choice to make also, but I mean, like, if you didn't specifically only go to college, if it was to a Torah college under Torah control, we live in the world, we work in regular places, we have Gentile friends, even at our okay. kids' bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs, we have Gentile friends who are there, etc. So it's not obvious, we're not living our lives in ways that obviously demonstrate that we think we're totally different from everybody else. 
It's the way to identify ourselves. Everybody has to identify themselves with something. So we identify ourselves as Israelites or Hebrews that we have duties on this planet. I'm not saying the rest is worse. This is me. Great. So we're gonna. That's that's a really fruitful step for us to take. Let's let's get a few other voices on the table. I'm that's not really excluding great. anybody. Great. Whoever wants to come, come along. Let's okay. Go. Come on board. You just said two different uh, things e- which I'm are both interesting. I'm not going to make it easy for that. Right. You just said two different things which are both <laughs> very interesting. Well, let's let's hear a couple of a couple of their hands. This is that's very fruitful. Robinson, what's your name again? Maya. Maya just said two potential directions we can go in. Each one of which is super interesting. So we're gonna we're gonna go down both of those. We had a hand over there. What's your name again? Judy. Judy, please. Recently in the Torah that we've been reading, uh, the Parsha. We know that Jacob singled out Joseph for special privileges and dressed him in a special garment. Yeah, how did that go? (laughs) 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 He was the chosen one. Yeah. And the other brothers... Uh, wanted to kill him. Yeah, in fact, the, the whole book of Breshid is filled with parents choosing... Dysfunctional whoa, 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 whoa. We're not... We're, we're, we're asking questions. We're asking questions. The whole, the whole book of Breshid is filled with parents picking children for different things and it not working out so well. But so, it, was a, it was two ways. He, they resented him and he also felt that it somehow conferred special privileges on him. So Right. So we've all seen a million ways in which, like, a sense of chosenness can go wrong. The question is, is that a bug or is it a feature? In other words, is that the Reconstructionist movement, at a certain point, Mordecai Kaplan himself and his followers said, yeah, the whole concept of chosenness is corrupt. We see all these examples of how it plays out. That's not how we understand ourselves, etc. The rest of the Jewish religious world, at least explicitly, hasn't gone that route ritually, and that we, you know, we still affirm, call out God's name in terms of chosenness, which means that, you know, one of the directions Maya is suggesting, or that some other paths we might, uh, we might hear, are going to be super important to try to figure out what do we, what do we mean by this. Um, if, the, if we're going to look for options that are not just everybody in the world is the same, or we're better, everybody else is worthless, which there is a strand of Jewish tradition that says that, which we'll talk about. Uh, yeah, one, two, and three. Say your names before you. Um, Erwin, um, I think this is a really important concept, particularly in the, in the light of the topic of the evening of um, us as a minority in a larger society. And I think it's, it's I think it's it's disingenuous to get around the concept that chosen has an implication of special. Um, and particularly when it's paired with, you know, God loves Israel throughout the Torah. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes me comfortable with it <laughs> um, is that I think every minority group within a broader dominant culture, um, particularly the ones you mentioned, um, either has to make a choice of either being ashamed or being apologetic for their uniqueness um, or to be proud of it. Um, and they all pick kind of a features of their culture that they're proud of. So actually my, one of my kids challenged me on this when they were in college studying a lot of stuff, and they, you know, on the, the negative aspect of being chosen, I said, you know, there are worse things to be chosen for mm-hmm. than being ethical. Yeah. 
Um, so if that's the way we identify ourselves, and the concept of chosen means, you know, this is how we're, this is our identity uh, in the broader society, it has to do with ethics. Great. So let's put that together with we're getting, uh, we have two more comments. Oh, sure. we'll come back to you. Yeah. Uh, I think we're all looking at the word chosen, too, as necessarily being a special thing and a good thing. But it's not always a good thing. Chosen could also be you're chosen for a job that's difficult. Yeah. And it yeah, may not be a job yeah. that the people want. Right, that was and my it, first one, yeah. Yeah, and given our history, you know, to... Yeah, we usually uh, haven't been so excited about been, it. Right. It hasn't right. been all that, <laughs> all that good all the time. Yeah. So just because you're chosen doesn't mean necessarily it's special. You could get, you could get the worst job in the world. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I... Oh, and, and name? Jane. Thank you, Jane, and... I just think that um, this is kind of connected to what you were saying about the names of God, and it reminds me of the context of ancient history where the Israelites were one people among many nations, so there were the Assyrians and the Philistines and all these other groups, and they each had their own God with that, that particular name that was rooted in its place. And and I think that yud hey vav hey was chosen choosing, uh, this prayer is talking about the time that our God, I guess, designated us as a people, and then we became something, rather than, you know, aimless wanderers or something like that. So I feel like it has that historical resonance, um, when, and it goes back to a time when people's religion was, was not universal, but it was rooted right there in a specific place and time to a specific Okay, so that's super interesting. So I'll actually refer to, I was just working with uh, some of these young leadership fellows, whatever they're called, and we were looking at the burning bush story. And that's, you know, one moment that could be the reference of here that, of like the Jewish people being chosen. Part of our question is there, when were we chosen? Like, who knew what, when, when were we chosen? If at that moment, God seems to be an unknown, uh, 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 a soundless, I mean, the yud heh vav makes no sound. It's like the sound of breathiness. Living in a bush in um, uncharted, like, uh, what's the term for uh, Unincorporated political territory out of Midian and out of Egypt in on a mountain called Choreb, which just means, you know, desolation or something like that. So in the middle of the desert. And when Moshe then goes to Pharaoh and says... Yudhe Vavhe sent me. Pharaoh says, Who? <laughs> never heard of him. I, I deal with a lot of international commerce here. I have a lot of lists of gods. Never heard of that one. So if we're referring to that moment, then we've maybe solved the problem in a certain way. Well, it's like, yeah, that God was looking for some followers, and Moshe was a pretty good guy and brought some people in. And, but then what happens when the project succeeds? And Lots of people around the world come to know Yudhe Vavhe, and um, and even recognize that being, the one who spoke the world into being, as the true God, or whatever we mean by that. So then, the relationship becomes a little different. If we're if we're living in a world pre-monotheism, where which I think there's a strong reading that many passages in the Torah aren't monotheistic. They're just, Israel has a responsibility of allegiance to this God. 
I am the Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't have any other gods before me. It doesn't deny the existence of other gods, just that it would be treasonous or ingrateful at the, at the very least for you to follow them after all I did for you. They might exist, but they might even be powerful. They might be more powerful, but they're not yours. And then there are other places in the Torah that really seem to indicate those other gods are BS also, like they're not, you know. And then later traditions certainly go strong in the way. So there's going to be a history of ideas. And when we say this, what do we mean? What do we mean by God? Are we talking about, like, you know, the biblical character of God and do others exist or not? Are we referring to the kind of Maimonidean abstract conception of God? Are we talking about, like, a Kabbalistic or Reconstructionist, maybe, like, spirit that pervades all? What do we mean and when do we mean it? Um, is, even if you're right, that's going to point us to another hard question. Okay? So thank you, Jessica, for that. Shmuley and Stu. Yeah. Just quickly, you know, um, we'll all have our different boundaries within pluralism, but another approach that some have taken has been that chosenness in itself is not exclusive, um, that there are other narratives that uh, suggest their own chosenness, and one could embrace a theology of multiple chosenness for different tasks. Put that out as well. That sort of that uh, chosenness doesn't have to be a problem if one believes um, everyone or at least many factions uh, might have their own form of chosenness. Great. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up on that in a second and tie it back into something that Maya said. Let's have Stu with the last comment on this, and then I'll tie some things together and direct where we go from there. Well, I want to take us back to to the original question that got this yeah. whole discussion going, and I thought what I remember because it was so long ago that yeah. your question was is what, what makes people, what makes Jews uncomfortable uh, with the notion of, uh, of, of being chosen. Then we kind of got into a discussion about what we thought chosen meant and, and whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. But the, 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 the idea that, that it, it does, in fact, make uh, people, uh, une some people, uneasy, yeah. uh, is we shouldn't lose that in the... Uh, Great. And like, you know, it's a, it's a thing that's well known, the phrase, the chosen people. And, but to put it back to sort of where we started, it's part of what I'm hearing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue this line of thinking. You know, we can talk at this table and several voices have said, like, no, I'm really comfortable with the concept. Let me ask you a different question. If you were hanging out with a Gentile friend or acquaintance who said, well, what's, what's the deal with the whole chosen people thing? Is that something that you feel less ease, less at ease answering what it means to you than you do in this room? If so, that's fine. I'm, I don't think that's a problem necessarily. It's, it's a problem in the interesting sense of something to work on, not you're doing, you know, you're flawed. But I think it's like, if, if there is some difference in how you, you're comfortable talking about it, that's an indication of the quality of the question, which is why... I'm interested in all these responses, but not so much that we forget the, the force of the question. Right. Like the, que the, the, the answers need to be at the level of the question. If you actually feel just as comfortable if you're in social non-Jewish settings talking about what it means to you, then you might have like a really interesting resolution um, <coughs> and that's, that's worth uh, pursuing. So, I would suggest that most people don't feel comfortable. I don't know about most, probably many, 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 probably many, many. many. Even even people many, who many. even people who, you know, who worship in reformed conservative or orthodox yeah. congregations where they say this blessing in this form. Yeah. So, um, and the fact that you know, 
a great 20th century Jewish thinker. Mordechai Kaplan was a serious thinker. Um, and a lot of you know, his detractors never really answered some of the questions. They just chose to say, well, I don't know, it's too, it's a little too crazy. And some thinkers, Eliezer Berkowitz, did try to like, give direct responses. Yeah, Mike, just, just a question maybe. Uh, historically, that blessing, was it really when we were a minority? Because in Israel, it, obviously, it's a different. Yeah. Oh, so was so, it always? Great question. Once so we, all of, pretty much all of Jewish history as we really know it. I mean, Judaism as we know it, that's not the biblical or you know, Second Temple pregame show, but Judaism as we know it really begins with the exile. Okay. Um, okay. And so Jews are basically, and certainly like, you know, there was, there's always prayer. Human beings always pray, but organized, um, ritualized prayer oh, was mostly developed okay. post-destruction of the temple, right. often from things that they were saying in the temple. Hallel, they were saying in the temple. Sure. The Shema seems to have existed pre-destruction as a set that, uh, as verses that were said ritually. Some blessings were in there, but it really becomes organized. The Sidur, as we know it, public Torah reading starts okay. with Ezra and Nehemiah and the return, okay. but really takes a life of its own post. So Jewish history, until Zionism, we're always living as minorities. So that's a right. super interesting question. Okay. What, is, what are the, the uses and misuses of this verse and the notion of chosenness when you're, uh, when you're in a, a minority who is persecuted versus when you're a minority and you're not persecuted? The golden age of Spain, Jews were a minority, but they were like very involved in society until things went sour, or today, us in America, like, we're a minority, but we're a pretty privileged minority, and I say that with great joy, like, you know, versus in, like, 1295 in Germany, where the Rheinfleisch massacres were about to be unleashed, or in, you know, in Kishinev, or, you know, wherever there have been uh, downtimes, to put it mildly. <laughs> How does chosenness play out in those settings? How does it play out when we not only have an army, but we're the sixth largest arms dealer in the world, like, you know, the IDF. So it's like, you know, the state of Israel is, we have a country, we are the majority, we have power, we have problems, but we also have power. And I'm saying we even, I mean, I happen to be an Israeli citizen also, most of the people here probably are not. Even that use of we is, is complicated, but on some level, so the Jewish people has a place we can go where the Jewish people is a majority and runs a government, runs an army, runs a state. So how does chosenness play out there? Um, what are the consequences of chosenness when we talk about chosenness? If you're, you know, if you're a Cossack raiding, you know, Jewish homes and property or threatening, or if you're a next door neighbor in sunny Phoenix wondering about the funny things your Jewish friend says in shul, or if you're a Palestinian living in East Jerusalem, like how does, how does Jewish chosenness play out to those different audiences? And I think it's, we might have some differences <coughs> on some of the details, but it's pretty clear it's going to be very different in all of us. Um, Shmuley, I think, uh, uh, among many others, you know, said, I think, very, very uh, constructive, constructive things. Maya began, and some of the other voices, um, 
Shmuley directed us toward, I think, a really important question. We talk about our chosenness. What it really depends, whether that chosenness is problematic or not, really depends on what our assumptions are about other people. So Shmuley was sort of suggesting, and this is you know, his teacher, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, and others will say this, and it's a direction I like, and probably me to some extent. It's like, well, yeah, we can only attest to the ways in which we were chosen. That same God may well have chosen other people. We weren't there, so we can't testify to that, but we should be receptive to hearing about it. But of course, if we're not receptive to hearing about it, then it becomes problematic. So that's going to be an interesting question. If we you know, look at our Muslim friends and neighbors or our Buddhist or Hindu friends and neighbors and actually are prepared to accept their testimony of their Sinai, their revelation, as we contribute ours to the world, that might be a path toward a really interesting cosmopolitanism that is faithful to Torah. Um, our literature doesn't always, in fact, pretty much never talks about that. So is that just a factor of a maturity that would be unreasonable to expect of pre-20th century texts? It would be anachronistic of a pre-20th century text? Or is that kind of flawed? Like we, we have to be careful about how much, how selectively we're picking from our tradition. Our modesty. What's that? Our modesty. Our modesty, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe it's our modesty. It's not our business. Just, we don't have skin in the game for what, whether Muhammad heard anything on the mount and if so where and what it was. So it's not our business to talk about that. Maybe that's our, our own humility. The same way, I don't particularly like it if some other religions are going to like speak for us. I'll, I'll put one, one sort of like mildly quasi-political thing on the table. I don't like it when politicians who are Christian or ministers or anyone sort of who's in the Christian tradition speaks about the Judeo-Christian ethic. I don't like it. Sort of feel like that's not, I might have common ground with you on this, but don't speak for me. You know, that's, I just want to put that on the ground that like that, the, the questions of how we interact with others, um, what, which elbows are going flying in the post, like for all of our interactions here, is part of what's, what's at issue. So I think in order to in order to understand that, let's actually turn into the Bilam stories, and that might be this is the perfect segue. So here's an example: How do we relate to a very wise, spiritually vibed-in, prophetic Gentile who was in relationship with the same God that we're in relationship with, um, and had a lot of, at least the way he spoke, had a lot of respect and fealty. To that God, what's your tradition? Elon had a comment. Yeah, just a short comment. So the blessing mentioned being uh, being chosen once in the past, and also being given the Torah. But the Torah is also given in the present. Chosenness is not uh, done now. It has been done before, but we are not chosen in the present. Okay, so A, what do you mean when you say the Torah is given now? That's either really interesting, or wrong, or a tremendous chidush, or a translation of something very obvious that we all say. But like, it can mean lots of different things. And what do you mean by the Torah is given now? And if the Torah is given now, how do you know the chosenness doesn't happen now too? If the, the past, we have two past tense verbs in this bracha, 
what's your indication that one of them stops at that moment, like you know, Jessica was talking about as a historical snapshot, and that the other one goes on. So talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by the Torah given that? I, I don't know. Maybe I read too much into it, but uh, <laughs> it's, it, it seems not, not to be accidental that you, they, they repeat the verb given uh, the Torah in, in, in the present tense and not the chosenness. Ah, very nice. So I, I, think, uh, I, I think the starting point is the chosenness, but today it doesn't mean anything because the only thing that is left from that chosenness, so I wasn't chosen as a Jew, I was born as a Jew, or I was, um, uh, some people made a choice to become Jews, yeah. but they weren't chosen. Um, Just and, want to make sure everybody got the textual point. That's a very interesting, good, subtle read. He's pointing out that, uh, yes, both, both verbs, bachar, chose, and natan, are originally there in the past tense, but then the chatima, the closure of the blessing, which has to be halachically, that has to be the upshot. The main point, boiling it down to its essential, is Baruch Hashem, who are you in this manifestation? Noten HaTorah, the giver of Torah, which is a continuous grammatical form. So yeah, I think that's a very, now of course, theologically and philosophically, what does that mean that God continues, who is God, what is Torah and how does God continue to give it is a super great question that we're probably not going to resolve right here. But, but you're right that the bracha, if it's inviting us to like try to under, make sense of chosenness, it's also inviting us to understand nitina, giving of the Torah in an ongoing, in an ongoing sort of way. There was one comment over there and then by yeah. Is there a historical context for the Bilam story? Political situation at the time? I mean... Oh, oh, oh. So we'll get to that in a second. So I hear Maya's comment to wrap up, and then we'll move on. Yeah, Maya. Yeah, thank you if you know Hebrew dikduk. Bachar banu, bachar is forever. It's past and present. Banu is us. It's now. It's, it's not once upon a time. It's I don't not. think that's right grammatically. Like banu I'm, is just, it, that could be either past, present, or future, you would say that. It is us. But the fact that we refer, you, where you're right is that the fact that even it's a past tense, perfect verb, we right. still describe it as not bachar bam, but bachar banu, is itself interesting. What does it mean about placing ourselves? Like Jessica might be right that, you know, it refers to some moment at some time, but the fact that we place ourselves there. I think it's a there. continuous so, thing. So yeah, there's interesting grammar. The, t the placement of time here is interesting. Right. The tenatara continuously it putting us who were born sometime right. between probably, okay. you know, the 40s and the 90s, placing us at some moment in the past, like how do we make sense of that? Yeah, okay. Bilam. So I'm not um, a big expert on uh, biblical history. I'm, a, I'm a, a periodic consumer of biblical historical scholarship, but not in any systematic sort of way. Um, I would be, you know, be curious to check like in the uh, new JPS commentary. Jacob Milgram of Blessed Memory did the Bemidbar volume and it's magisterial and it's, it's the best volume of the five because he did it. He's great. So I've read all the, the notes on the Bilam story. I don't remember what he says, um, but he's going to get into there. I think there are um, 
inscriptions that we find archaeologically in the Middle East about a Bilam ben or somebody like that as being some famous spiritual dude. But I don't remember what it is or what exactly we know about it. I know that Milgram has an essay in the back of the Midbar book on the question of, of was Bilam a prophet or a sorcerer? Prophets, yay. Sorcerers, boo, from a Hebrew Bible perspective. So it gets into that question. Um, and uh, he does mention what other archaeological evidence. I just don't have it in my fingertips. So, um, from a literary perspective, the political context is that the Israelites are this band, big band of, of desert wanderers right now. Not wanderers, they're heading toward Eretz Israel. Um, and they've been, they've been making some noise. And the people whose land they have to pass through I'm so happy about them. They've heard some stories. Like, you know, escaped from Egypt. And a lot of people died along the way. And we took a lot of wealth with us from that. We made sure we got all of our reparations. And then Amalek tried a sneak attack from behind. And we beat them. So, like, you know, noise has been being made. And then, so, uh, the king of Balak is very unhappy at our approach. And says we got to do something about these Israelites, hires Bilam. Now, I wish we had time to like really do a full reading all the entire Bilam story. I've excerpted some things from around the story. Basically, what I, I've broken it up here as the bad and the good about Bilam. Like, what is the biblical and rabbinic case for Bilam being a bad guy? And what is the biblical and rabbinic case for Bilam being a good guy? Before we jump into that, does anybody, any of you, have any of your own feelings about this from your own memories of the stories in the 24th to 26th chapters of Bimidbar, Parshat, Balak, what you, and if you don't have experience with it, that's okay. You yeah, the donkey but. that didn't move. So yeah, that. there's a middle, that weird story, what's the deal with the donkey in the middle, all of a sudden he's like, on the Bilam's on his way, doing his thing, and then there's this donkey story, which like literally like shoved in there, right? And like the terrain is different than the terrain was right before. So what's going on with the donkey story? <laughs> Talking donkey. Bilam certainly looks like a fool in that story. Any other impressions from you know your ex experience you might have with the Bilam story? Bilam, good guy or bad guy? Nobody has an opinion about this. I can't believe that. He's from the UN. <laughs> he's not here. He's not there. He's just he's doing his job without. And what's his job? He. As how, far how does I, he present his job? As, as far as I remember, I don't know. They're asking him to come and, and do that, and he says, "I'm a messenger. Whatever comes out of my mouth, I'm not responsible. It's not me." But I'm a messenger of whom? That's okay. That's pretty good. So that sounds pretty good. Let's just want to put that on the table. Was, whose words were he speaking? So he, he's I, saying, okay. so like, you know, Balak, Balak, the King Balak, who seems to be satirized as this like kind of boorish general king kind of guy. He's like, oh, we need to do something. We got a geopolitical problem. Get, uh, get some, it's sort of like the way people who don't know anything about religious culture, the way they sort of think that what kosher supervisors are doing is like saying a blessing over the food and that makes it kosher. That seems to be the way Balak is. It's like, no, we don't have any special role. We're just looking at it to make sure that no mistakes happen. Like, 
It's really, it's, it's about food, it's not about magic, there's no magic happening. And Balak seems to have this approach, like, the Israelites are, we're afraid of them, we can't mess them. Fine, you know, so that, that Bilam, he's, he's a religious guy, he's a sorcerer, let him come in, cast a spell. So he sends the, Balak sends his messengers, they go and they say, Bilam, we've been sent by Balak, pay you a good fee, because they assume that's what, you know, religious people do, they're for hire to like wave magic wands. Um, unfortunately, it's, that idea is prob probably has some currency because there are some shysters out there who act like that, but be that as it may. So, um, and Bilam's like, well, I don't really do that. Um, I just, I say what Elohim fills with inspiration. Like his answer is so like, I'm not a sorcerer, I'm a prophet, I'm vibed in. So, I, I mean, I'm happy to tell you what Elohim says, but it has nothing to do with whether you pay me or whether you like it. So they go back and Balak says, no, nah, it's fine. He gets it. He's like, I, I told you. He starts to go. He asks Elohim. Elohim says, God says, yeah, go. It's fine. And then there's like the donkey story comes in where God's all of a sudden mad at him for going. And then the story ends and they repeat the same verse like right before the donkey story and he's going. And then throughout the rest of the story, like he goes to Balak, Balak says, okay, I need you to curse Israel. And Bilam's like, I can't promise that. I only do what Elohim tells me. And Balak's like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And then he comes out and praises Israel because that's what the Spirit of the Lord tells him to do. Three times, and Balak is beside himself. He's like, I told you to curse them. And Bilam's like, I told you. I'm not in that business. I don't make stuff up. So from that perspective, it sounds like Bilam is a relatively positive character. Most of the Jewish literature around Bilam is negative. And often, like around Parshat Balak, you'll have a lot of kind of hand-wringing among Jews, like, why is it that everybody who's good in the Bible were negative about Asaph was a good guy, why does he get such a bad rep? And Bilam was a good guy, why does he get such a bad, a bad rep? So the bad rep is also well-supported. So let's look at the bad. We're, we're, the first thing here is seven chapters after the Bilam story. We're now in Parshat Pinchas. After there was the orgy with the Midianite, uh, you know, Balak's plans were foiled. Bilam only praised Israel. And then we go on more trials and tribulations. And the Midianites lure us. We seem only all too willing into a big pagan orgy. Not good. Pinchas is the one with zealotry for a god who goes in and smites the interfaith couple brazenly uh, in the act of coitus in front of the tent of meeting, in front of everybody, and it's bloody and the most R-rated moment of the Torah. And great. So then after that, there's time for comeuppance. So a few chapters later. Somebody want to read, English is fine here, um, chapter 31. I'll read. Great. Uh, and they attacked Midian as Yahweh com commanded Moshe. And they attacked every male. They killed every male. You were cleaning it up Sorry, there. They yeah. killed every it's male. It's worse, yeah. And the kings of Midian they killed with the rest of their corpses Evi and Rechem and Sur and Fur and Riva, the five kings of Midian. And Bilam, the son of Beor, they killed him with a sword. And Moshe said to them, you kept all the females alive? They were the ones who induced the Israelites on the word of Bilam to revolt, breaking faith with Yahweh. 
in the matter of Peor, such that the plague came upon Yahweh's community. Okay, so evidence number one, that the piece of evidence number one that leads to a negative portrayal of Bilam is that the Torah itself, several chapters later, has this tradition that Bilam was also had a later, he didn't just go his merry way and never interact with the Israelites again. He was actually the one rabble-rousing for this, um, for this terrible, catastrophic national crisis of the pagan origin. That's good to know. Um, somebody want to take Devarim chapter 23. Now we have 40 years later our memories of the previous story. Right. No Ammonite or a Moabite shall enter into the assembly, assembly of Yahweh. Even to the tenth generation, none of them shall enter into the assembly of Yahweh forever. Okay, so that's a mitzvah, first of all. So we have to keep boundaries. Um, Ammonites and Moabites are not allowed in our people. Why not? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the road. And when you came out of Egypt, and because he hired against you, Bilam, the son of Beor, and Pitor, from Pitor, from Pitor of Am Aram Naharaim, to curse you. So Moab is, is permanently out because the king of Moab, A, they were unhospitable, but B, because the king of Moab hired Bilam to curse us. So far, story checks out. Balak, bad guy, we don't like him. He tried to get Bilam to curse us. Go on. But Yahweh your God was not willing to hear Bilam, but Yahweh your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because Yahweh your God loved you. Do not seek their peace nor their well-being all your days forever. All right, according to this retelling in the book of Zvarim, what's the reason why Bilam, despite being hired to curse Israel, said all these blessings? He was forced. Yeah. So he really wanted to curse us. He wanted to go after the big bucks and curse us. And God did magic and got into his mouth and against his will, word came out this way. So in other words, when Bilam <coughs> says to Balak, hey man, I can only do what Elohim makes me, the way, according to Devarian, you would stage that if you're a theater director, is you have him with a mopey tone of voice being like, I really would love to, but I just want to warn you, there's this thing that happened. I hate Israel too, I really want to curse them, I want your money, you know. But Elohim has this control over me. So I'm hoping that he's going to let this one go, and I can curse Israel, but sometimes what can I tell you? It happens. That's the Devarim retelling of the story. Third piece of evidence, sort of like the negative evidence for that Bilam is a bad guy, is the donkey insertion itself. I didn't bring it here, I don't have time to like really do a close reading of this, but those 19 verses of the donkey story insertion, 17 verses of the donkey story insertion, which again, the story, if you, if you omit the, these 17 verses, the story reads completely smoothly. And so the donkey version really reads as though it's, it's an insertion, not to mention the, like the terrain is different. Like he's been going in like the desert, and then all of a sudden there are orchards on his side and the donkey starts. So it's like the whole thing doesn't really fit literarily. Like people in a different time, different culture, I should say, I should say people. An author in a different context with different agenda seems to be writing that and inserting it 
in here. But that is part of our tradition now. And it, satir it, it satirizes Bilal and makes him seem like a real fool who can't even see something that his, that his ass can see, right? And so if he's not able to see it, what kind of fake prophet? What does the donkey story seem to think about like Gentile spiritual wisdom? Not much. Um, and this comes to a head in many rabbinic traditions. I've given you two powerful, instructive ones here. Two, uh, both from the Tanaitic period, the classic core period of rabbinic Judaism. So soon, you know, just 150 years after the destruction of the temple, the Mishnah, the Josepta. The Mishnah in Sanhedrin, chapter 10, lists people who do and do not have a share in the world to come. The second Mishnah teaches us that three kings and four civilians, commoners, have no share in the world to come. The three kings are Yeruvam, Ahab, and Menashe, who are three of the most corrupt characters in you know, the books of kings. And four commoners, Bilam, Doeg, Achitophel, and Gehazi. Doeg, Achitophel, and Gehazi all are shady characters who do nasty things in um, the stories of like uh, uh, Eliyahu and Elisha, that, that time period. Um, so, and Bilam is grouped with them. So Bilam is singled out as having no share in the world to come, which seems a striking distance to travel for a character who on the simplest reading of most of his main story just says, I follow Elohim. I do what Elohim tells me. I don't care how much money you offer me. I don't stray from what Elohim tells me. That seems like a far distance to travel. We've seen some of the points in between from chapter 31 and from Devarim. Let's look at a couple of the, the instantiations of good and see what sense we make of this. And then we'll talk a little bit about Hanukkah. Um, so the good, for, we already talked about the Bilam story itself without the donkey insertion. It makes it sound like Bilam was a good guy, a vibed-in, authentic, spiritual operator. That would be a good source for Shmuley's theological idea that different peoples can be chosen in different ways. We were chosen via Torah, but God speaks with other people. We don't necessarily who, know who they are. We happen to have found out about this one. Bilam is a non-Israelite who was spoken to by God and who revered God and spread God's word in the world. If you forget about these other traditions elsewhere in the Torah and just read the narrative itself, that's what it sounds like. So you have that, and you have this verse in Micha. Different from the verse in Devarim and similar ones in Joshua and Nehemiah that I cited for you, the prophet Micha, an early prophet, says the following. What do you have here? Somebody want to read this? He's a, the prophet here is sort of um, chastising the people for their ungratefulness and reminding them of all the good things that have happened. Like, I, I am worth it. Like, why are you not faithful? Does somebody want to read this verse? The English is fine. My people, please remember what Balak, king of Moab, advised and what Bilam, son of Beor, answered him from Shittim of the Kilgal in order to know the righteousness of Adonai. Now, there are a couple different ways to read that verse. How do you read it? What's the, what's the upshot of this? So you've had your trials and tribulations along the way, and I've been a good God for you. Why are you, why are you being so faithless? 
don't you remember the previous verses? They're like, remember this bad thing that happened, and I hooked you up. So here, remember what Balak, king of Moab, advised. What did Balak, king of Moab, do we remember? What did Balak advise? Curse, Curse the Israelites so they get destroyed, okay? So you were in danger. Powerful foreign king trying to destroy you. What does Micha go? How does Micha continue? What did Bilam the son of Bor answer him? Blessing. <coughs> and all the way from Shittim up to Gilgal, a whole journey in between these locations. And why? In order to know the righteousness of Hashem. Now it's hard to know whether that means the reason Bilam did that is so that you would know the righteousness of Hashem, or Bilam did this the whole way affirming his own knowledge, probably the former. You can read the Micha verse, given that we've already seen Zvarim and Joshua, which says the same thing, that like he wanted to say bad things and God you know, moved, was a ventriloquist who made him say the right things. You can read Micha that way. And somebody who's a harmonizer, let's say Rashi, is going to want to read the Micha verse that way. My people remember what Balak wanted to do to destroy you, and what Bilam, on my influence, said in response, and the reason that happened, I did that so that you would know my righteousness. You can read it that way, and in light of Devarim, that's, a, I think, a coherent reading. But if you don't take for granted that all, sort, all voices in the Tanakh speak in one voice, and that they're all respe- reflecting one perspective, I think a more conservative reading of the Micha passage, and that of Bible scholars, Milgram among them, and some other Bible scholars, is that the Micha passage is a way like, remember, powerful people are out to get you, and disciples of mine helped you. They recognized, they said good things about you. And you should know that I am righteous. Like, I am a God, how does God make God's self known to like, like being virtuous? I have prophets in the world, even among the nations who help you out by saying the right things, who know you, who know me. Like, you should, what's evidence of God's love for Israel? There's a Gentile prophet like Bilam. That, I think, is a more conservative reading of Micha, though it creates conflict with these other passages. But on the other hand, we're a bunch of Jews sitting around a table. We probably have a lot of conflict among us. Why shouldn't we assume that the Tanakh is also somewhat messy theologically, and the same way in our, in our regular Jewish community, you're going to have some universalists who just like love Gentiles. Like, you know, in your Facebook news feed, you probably have some members of your Jewish community who are, you know, saying, keep all the immigrants out, and you probably have Jewish people in your news feed saying, bring all the immigrants in, and they're both saying it because we're Jews. You know, <laughs> we are Jews and we were immigrants ourselves, and so therefore keep all the we're universalists. Or we're Jews and we have to protect our interests and we're afraid of these people who might attack us. And like the, the fact that I have my opinions about those, which um, are similar to Shmuley, let's just say, um, that <laughs> doesn't mean that I think that I don't acknowledge that the other ones exist or have a real place in a, in a conversation. Um, and that that's always the case. So I sort of assume the same about the Tanakh, that even people who, if in our community, people who see themselves as followers of Hashem, take different messages. And someone might be right and someone might be wrong, but we, people still think different things. Within the Tanakh itself, you might have inspired voices 
of people who are um, receiving God's <coughs> word or perceive themselves to be who have different takes on things. Bilam, good guy or bad guy. This, ta- we, this follows through in rabbinic literature also, um, mainly with this one midrash that we're going to read. The negative portrayal of Bilam is much more common than the positive portrayal. But let's read this midrash and give some time. Yeah. I think if I remember this right yeah. about the whole donkey story, that it might be just seems to be inserted. Yeah. But in, in that donkey story, isn't an angel appears, right. blocks his path. Yeah, in the donkey story, Bilam comes out as a bad guy. Not only a bad guy, but he's an idiot also. An idiot. Right. So, well, well, but, but he's being encouraged. I I thought I took that story to mean he's being encouraged to rethink his his his, his thoughts about cursing. Israelite. Yeah. So because the donkey's telling right. them. What's, what's problematic about that story is that when you read that, and you're like, but he never said he was going to curse Israel. In fact, he said explicitly, I will do only what God tells me. I'm not going to agree to your bargain. I'm not signing on the dotted line. I'm not agreeing to curse Israel. I can come if you want, but I'm telling you, I'm just going to do whatever God tells me. And then you have, and God says, and he asks God, can I go? And God says, yes, go. And then the next verse, and God gets, gets mad at him for going, and then bring, you know, puts the angel in front of the donkey and the whole story. So the whole thing is like very disjointed. Um, literarily, it seems like you know, the anti-Bilam people, the people who <laughs> have the tradition that Bilam also was behind the, uh, the orgy at Balpa'or, and the people who were behind the tradition that Bilam really wanted to curse um, wanted to curse Israel. They read the story and like it looks pretty positive because it seems to be reflecting the perspective of those who understood Bilam as a true prophet, just wasn't part of our team, but was part I of our I think team. what it's reflecting is that, that um, and they're responding as it to said it. In, the, in this last part about uh, in order to know the righteousness of yeah. Hashem, yeah. That, that he did, Hashem intervened. I think. So that's definitely Devarim's take. Like the anti Bilam camp, the anti Bilam passages have a very clear ideological reading of the Bilam story. Bilam was out to curse Israel. The subtext when he's like, I'll do what Elohim tells me, that was just lawyer speak for, for, um, for um, like plausible deniability or like sort of like when somebody wants a lawyer is going to give you some advice on something but has to say but I'm not accountable for it like if it does, doesn't turn out they're a stockbroker or something like that so Bilam has to say like I have to I have to tell you that's the, that is Devarim's take and so, that might be your take too and that's fine you have a you have strong verses to support you I'm just saying that like reading passages on their own terms non-harmonically, it sounds like there's some other passages who don't really think that. It sounds like the, the, the donkey story is such a weird like mismatch. It sounds like somebody with a negative Bilam view is inserting this, this, this satirical story in order to break up and give give another impression of it. Now, if, we, if you're re- reading harmonically, as like Rashi and like all rabbinic tradition is pretty much mostly going to do, then that's going to be the dominant read of it. And you have a lot to support you. And in that, from that perspective, it'll be harder if you are a modern, Gentile-loving Jew who thinks that the Dalai Lama really is vibed in 
or who shares inspiration that Pope Francis said something and it was meaningful to you, inspired, you'll have a harder time coming up with Jewish language to validate why you're doing that. Because the Devarian voices and, and many voices and the donkey story voice and the mission of Sanhedrin, those are voices that seem not to be too enamored with the possibility of there being authentic prophecy and religious inspiration outside of our team. Those are voices that seem to think that chosenness does mean we're in a world of evil, we're in a world of, of junk and garbage, and God has chosen us, and we are, we are the ark, we are in a world that's being destroyed, and we have to provide light into the world, which is a strong Jewish tradition behind that, and like most religions have those voices. And there are many contemporary Jews who say that too. I'm just pointing out that I'm not taking for granted that that's the only voice in the Jewish tradition. Oh, I wasn't saying that. Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So, and I, I want to push you. I want to push you. Yeah. And like, whichever one is more meaningful to you, they might be more meaningful at different times. But I want to actually listen carefully to those other voices. And if you're not sensitive to what Micha means on his own terms, or what maybe the story in Parshat Balak means on its own, or that like when some of the universalists in your life raise difficult questions around the Shabbos table on Parshas Balak, and they say, why is Bilam getting such a raw deal? He seems to be a good guy. So that you don't say to them, you're an idiot, you're not reading it right. They might have a really interesting reading. It might not be the same as your reading, but their reading might have what to advocate for it. Um, and you have this one Midrash, which is a small minority in the rabbinic tradition, but worth paying attention to as well. So let's take a look at this Midrash from the Sifrei. That's the Tanaitic Midrash on the Book of Dvarim, going verse by verse on Dvarim. Um, yeah, I got the watch right here. So, um, And uh, it says some interesting things. So let's, uh, we have a volunteer to read this Midrash. It's an English. There yeah. has not arisen another prophet in Israel like Moshe. So that is in the very end of the Torah. This is like the third to last Midrash in the book because it's two psukim from the end of the Torah. And he's already died. It's those like ten verses afterwards. And the Torah says that, Lo kam Israel There's never been another prophet in Israel like Moshe. Go on. None has arisen in Israel, but one has arisen among the nations. And who was he? the long son of Beor. But there was a difference between the prophecy of Moses and that of Bilam. Moshe did not know who was speaking to him out of the burning bush, whereas Balaam did know who was speaking to him, as it is said, the saying of him who hears the words of God. So that's it's quoting from uh, Bilam's, I believe, first poetic speech when he gets the Spirit of God in him and talks. He opens up, like, near the beginning. He's saying, like, okay, here's my introduction, my prelude, he already knows that he is hearing the words of God. Whereas when Moshe, first time Moshe hears God at the burning bush, um, Moshe just thinks it's interesting. It's like a bush on fire. It's like, why is that bush from Why is this bush on fire not being consumed? That's interesting. I should go turn and see. Uh, and then God has to self-identify, saying like, Moshe, Moshe, I am the God of your ancestors, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, etc. There's a whole rigmarole. And Bilam seems to be very intimate, like knows, knows exactly what's going on. Go on. Moshe did not know when God would speak to him until he was spoken to, whereas Bilam <coughs> did know when God would speak with him 
as it is said, and knows the knowledge of the Most High. That's the continuation of the previous verse. Moses so, was spoken to by God only when he was standing, as it is said. But as for you, you stand here by me. Whereas Elam was spoken to when he was fallen down, as it is said, who sees the vision of the Almighty fallen down yet with open eyes. To what may this be likened? To the parable of the king's butcher, who knows what the king's expenses are for supplying his table. Let's, because of shortness of time, thank you, let's bracket the parable at the end. For now, it's an interesting thing, but let's, let's bracket that. And just point out that there is this Midrash that stands a kind of alone in the rabbinic tradition, not totally alone, but mostly, as saying, Bilam was a real prophet and was more, even more vibed in than Moshe was. Um, and that is a real thing. Now, it doesn't exactly, it doesn't explicitly say, and he was righteous and really wanted to only do what God said. It doesn't deny what the book of Zvarim says, that he was trying to curse, but it doesn't seem to be invested in that tra uh, tradition, um, and it's not trying to suppress the possibility of his like authentic prophecy. Um, and once we say that prophecy can be authentic among Gentiles, it's a way of saying, like, yeah, we don't have, um, we don't even have the monopoly on transmitting Hashem's words to the world, then all of a sudden, studying wisdom, even humanity's wisdom, from non-Jewish sources, becomes, at least in some circumstances, not only put either a problem or maybe allowed, but perhaps, in the right circumstances, maybe even obligatory, if we want to understand the most robust version of God's word. So I just want to take that seriously as something that does not eliminate these other voices, but it does stand in tension with it. I actually want to, because of shortness of time, I'm going to bracket other questions and kind of like train through another couple of things and then wrap up. I'm willing to stay after a few minutes if people have further comments. By way of making sense of this, or at least beginning to make sense of it, I want to like share just a couple of thoughts about Hanukkah. One, we are right now in this interesting period between the end of Hanukkah and in a usually forgotten or unknown other important day just after Hanukkah in the history of the story of Greeks and their wisdom and Israel. Uh, Megillat Ta'anit is a rabbinic work that uh, is not really studied much anymore outside of academic circles, although it was quite a core work in the early days of rabbinic uh, history. It was kind of lost for a while, but it's a book uh, back when uh, people loved to fast all the time, I had fast days for everything, I was like, oh, I had a bad dream, I should fast for three days, or like, you know, it's not raining, we should fast. Um, that's sort of far from our culture now, but this book lists all sorts of fast days, which are not really on our calendar anymore. But Megillat Ta'anit, which is an authentic rabbinic work, says, these are the days on which one fasts on Torah authority. And anyone fasting on them may not eat, may not drink until the evening, etc. And a, list, a whole list of them. Near the end, on the 8th of Tevet, which I guess is this Sunday, I think. This Sunday. The 8th of Tevet, the Torah was written in Greek in the days of King Ptolemy. And darkness came to the world for three days. So the day of the completion of the translation of Torah into Greek is a day of tragedy, of darkness coming to the world. Now that's weird. 
because we want to be a light into the nations, and the way to be a light into the nations is to contribute Torah into the world, wouldn't it be amazing for Torah to exist in other languages? Other people want to study Torah? Why is that? Why is it bad? Other people want to access the wisdom of Hashem? Why would that be a bad thing? Not only that, I forgot to put it on the sheet. Um, there is a Mishnah, so in which uh, one of the sages, I believe it's Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, says that uh, Torah should not be translated into any language except for Greek. Sort of an acknowledgement. Is that right? Yeah, I forget where it is. It, um, but. Yeah, I think you're right. I think in Masechet Megillah. Um, there seems to be some acknowledgement that the Greeks were different than some of our other neighbors. We didn't always, we have ambivalent relationships with the Greeks. Other nations, some of these like barbaric Cossacks or proto-Cossacks and the hell with all of them. The Greeks were different. They oppressed us, it's bad, but they had something real going on. Translation of Torah into their language might be a positive thing, it might be allowed, but it also has negative consequences. Why? Well, one window into why, not necessarily the answer, but one window. Um, let's look at this Midrash on the bottom of page three here. This is sort of a late Midrash. I'm doing some collapsing here to try to make sense of different voices, um, but maybe this is a window into what Megillat Tanit is thinking. Rabbi Yehuda, the Levite, son of Rabbi Shalom, said, kind of a labor, rabbinic voice, Moshe requested that the Mishnah 2 be in writing. Now, this is already sort of a funny thing. It's like, it's one of these, I mean, this is a late Midrash. It's like early medieval. So at this point, you know, Torah and Mishnah have been collapsed. It's just like Torah is the sense of like stuff we learned that's Jewish. And so we now imagine Moshe as being the character receiving all of it. The oral Torah, which is all these texts, and the written Torah is these texts. So the Mishnah, too, should be in writing. By the time of the Tanchuma, it probably was beginning to be written. But the Holy Blessed One foresaw that in the future, the nations of the world will translate the Torah and read it in Greek. And they would say, Af Anu Yisrael, we too are Israel. The Holy Blessed One said to him, I will write for you the abundance of my Torah, a verse from the prophet Hosea. And if so, they are accounted as strangers. The verse in Hosea, in its own context, is like the prophet crying. And they're like, I gave you so much Torah, and yet you treat it like it's a stranger. But now it's being recontextualized to mean, um, I will write for you the abundance of my Torah, meaning I will proliferate its presence in the world. And a consequence of that is that they are counted as strangers. The way they're counted as strangers is the fact of the Greeks having Torah makes them say, we too are Israel. There are three minutes left. So I'm going to do this kind of quickly. I want to tie some things together by saying that, um, so I'm, I'll put my allegiances out there. I'm for the most part on the pro-Bilam side. Okay. <laughs> I think that the Dalai Lama is vibed in. I think that Pope Francis is vibed in. I think there are wise people throughout the world. I don't think the Jewish people are theologically necessarily more wise, even more insightful into the ways of Yehovah than others. I think Shmuley is basically right that um, chosenness means we were chosen via Torah. And other peoples were presumably chosen 
via other revelations. I have no reason to doubt them. All Torah requires of me with regard to other people is that they not violate seven, the seven mitzvot b'nei Noah, which are just basic civilized behavior like, you know, murder, incest, uh, theft, having a, some kind of justice system, tearing animals from, tearing limbs from live animals. You know, it's like anyone who does that is a barbarian. And I don't trust them when they say that they're doing this. If they say, well, my God told me to, to steal, I'm saying, well, all right, I don't believe you. But if they're saying, my God spoke to me, to the prophet Muhammad on the mountain, and said that our justice system should be based this way, and okay, sounds good. Like, how do I know? I wasn't there. It's not my job. So I, I, you know, I'm resistant to, like, when people who aren't Muslims go out and say, like, ISIS isn't authentic Islam. It's like, that's not our case to make. That's colonizing Islam a little bit, like trying to speak for them. But when Muslims speak and say, like, we are in battle with that, that doesn't represent us, we just take their word for it. Um, the same way that within, within our Jewish tradition, it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily want some Gentile trying to decide who's, who's right, Shmuel Yankulitz or Mer Kahana. It's like... I personally am siding with Shmuley, but like, you know, I don't think somebody who's not in the tradition should necessarily be speaking for him. So I'm on that side. I think some of the motivation behind these negative voices, like the anti-Bilam voices, are recognizing that when you're a minority, the, the generous view that like we all have what to learn from each other often comes out as being powerful majoritarian cultures co-opting us and saying, Anu Yisrael, we too are Israel. Um, as somebody who is very much like aligned politically on the left, I, I see this as something that I distrust in a lot of my compatriots on the left who um, I think have an allergy to any kind of like Jewish power in any context, not just to abuse of power, but to power itself. And I think they're being colonized by a certain kind of old Christian anti-Semitism that wants to co-opt Israel and say that like, you know, the best way to be Israel is to die on the cross and to stop living in the dismal carnal existence of this world and to escape that into being uh, Jews of the spirit, a Pauline kind of move. And we don't take that move. And I think that there is this kind of like colonizing tendency for the majority that like, if only the Jews had died in the Shoah and been totally annihilated in the Shoah, then we could all look to Israel as the ultimate Christ, to Israel as the ultimate, we could all be Israel. No, we're pluralists. So we're actually, if we're deep theological pluralists, we affirm life, oppression is a problem. And we don't necessarily want other, other people using us, co-opting our wisdom, um, or colonizing our wisdom to fold, you know, to fold us into their, into their language and our system. They should be listening to us. And some of this resistance, some of the knee-jerk anti-Bilam stuff, I think is a way of playing out. If I start going down the road of saying nice things about Gentiles, we're going to be overwhelmed. Now, I think we live in a much more generous, a much more positive culture than the Greek culture, where the Greeks were simultaneously um, decreeing against Torah study and translating the Torah into Greek and, uh, well not simultaneously, they translated it first and then the decrees came later. So that's a good reason to distrust. 
America does seem different. And yet, we should be wary. Do we validate or embrace our own tradition only to the extent that it lines up nicely with other people's tradition? Or do we present our tradition to the world on its own terms? When we get excited about Abraham Joshua Heschel, is it Abraham Joshua Heschel was a great Jewish thinker and he marched with Dr. King, always using somebody else as the reference point by which to judge whether our guy makes the cut. Or do we say Abraham Joshua Heschel was a radical interpreter of Torah who contributed a significant voice to the world about what liberation and service of God means and saw common cause on a parallel way with people elsewhere, such as Reverend King, who we saw the parallel. Like, what, those are subtle differences, and on a certain level, it doesn't make any difference. It's the same thing. But how are we actually positioning ourselves with, re with relation to the wisdom around us? Finally, I think Hanukkah itself, and with this I'll wrap up, um, this is an idea sort of planted from the, uh, some essays of Rav Yitzchak a very interesting, overlooked 20th century Jewish thinker. Um, um, I think part of the way we bring in Gentile wisdom in a way that is authentic and respectful and acknowledges perhaps the reality of Gentile wisdom and prophecy and authenticity and like really moving into that without, um, without always seeing our tradition as being secondary or being dragged along or needing to justify itself um, in light of somebody else's. I think the way to do that is always to be translating somebody else's language into our own. Maybe the main function of having one's own tradition is itself language. Any idea can be anybody's cultural inheritance, but language is not. So for example, um, the first instanti instanti instantiation of a machloket, of a dispute that we see in the Mishnah, the earliest dispute between Yosef ben Yuezer and Yosef ben Yochanan, um, an arcane halachic matter about how to do a sacrament. It doesn't matter. It's in the Mishnah in Chagiga. And it's the oldest named sages we see in dispute with each other. It's in the time of the Maccabees that they lived. But Huttner says about that, I sort of imagine that until the, the Greeks decrees against studying Torah, no Torah was ever forgotten in Israel, maybe. And disputes were a result of those decrees because edu the educational system was disrupted, people forgot stuff. And that's exactly what the, what the Greeks were going for in disrupting Torah education. And yet, he points out, in our culture today, machloket, dispute, is not a bug in Torah wisdom. It's a feature. It's the thing that is most definitive of the Talmud and of vibrant Jewish culture. And when we have machloket, we find out that we're actually much richer than we were at the beginning. If we all knew the same point and remembered the same fact of Torah, we have that. If we all remember it somewhat differently and then we come to discuss it, we might, through consensus, reach the true fact, but we've also gained all that discussion and the insights and the shadings that we might not have noticed before. Turning something that was external or a problem 
into our own feature such that it is um, uh, unrecognizable as external, that I think is a way, um, the way to be, um, to be cosmopolitan uh, in the world and not colonized. We are minorities and we have to be very careful. Like when we're even in a, a friendly world like the one, like the world we live in today, where we don't have to worry that like, oh, Gentile wisdom is gonna be, it's gonna turn us into heretics. No, it's good. Um, but we have to position ourselves in such a way that when we are bringing in wisdom from sources that are outside of our culture, we do so with a firm standing that Torah itself is enhanced and expanded and deepened and broadened by that encounter and not just swept up as being a footnote into somebody else's. That's cool. Thank you. Thank you.